Welcome back to the Plenary Session Podcast. I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Timothy Olivier from Geneva, Switzerland. He's a practicing medical oncologist, and people on this show know he's their favorite guest host. People love when Timothy comes on. I've gotten many comments about the difference in our style, and although we may have differences in style, we have less differences when it comes to the technical appraisal of medical evidence. Timothy, it's great to see Hi. you. Great to Hi, see Bina. you. It's a, it's a pleasure. I mean, that's a long time we, we didn't make a show. Uh, we are very regularly meeting for our research lab uh, meeting, but that's really nice to be on Panish session again. It's great to have you, Timothy. I was traveling in Europe, as you know. We had lunch in Brussels, and yeah, uh, on, on my uh, on my trip, I got so many people saying their favorite guest host is Timothy because he keeps you he keeps you honest. They say <laughs> he keeps me honest. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, you are right. We are, I think, pretty much aligned on on many many issues and we have of course different style but you, I, I mean and my ideas were were shaped a lot by the reading of your works your books and of course others but uh, yeah yeah i think people are on the show know that very well well thanks for doing this so today we have a great lineup in store for you if you're listening at home we're going to talk about quality of life in the adjuvant space we're going to talk about financial toxicity what that might have to do with quality of life. We're going to talk about post-protocol therapy. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about the Adora study, which is the talk of the town at ASCO. This is all based on three publications that Timothy has put out in the last few months. So let's get into it, Timothy. Let's get into it. Why don't we start with quality of life in the adjuvant space? So what exactly yeah. was this project? Where did you publish it? What are we getting into here? Yeah. Yeah. So quality of life uh, in the adjuvant space, uh, it's uh, it's really a, a question I, I had and we talk about, I think I was um, I was in San Francisco at that time about, you know, this quality of life results and what does that mean in the in the adjuvant setting? Of course, the adjuvant setting for, for people out there, I, I'm sure most of them know that already. But in the adjuvant setting, by definition, patients are uh, potentially already cured of the, their disease, they could recur, but they are not suffering from any active cancer symptoms. So I think that's a very, very important difference as compared to the metastatic or advanced setting where people are suffering from a disease. And, and so the question I had is, what are the data, what are the re results, how, um, how is reported the quality of life results in the adjuvant setting? And why this question arises? It's because since few years, I, I would say 2018, with a lot of a lot of novel products approved in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant setting. Adora is one example, but we have you know um, many 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 new uh, not not so many. We we have 12 when we published this. Uh, until that, we have three more. But it's a lot. I mean, 15 uh, novel products approved in the adjuvant or neoadjuvant space. So I think it's a very important topic in general, and we want to take a deep dive in quality of life results. The paper is now out, Journal of Cancer Policy. It's entitled yeah. Quality of Life in the Adjuvant Setting, a Meta-Analysis of U.S. Food and Drug Administration Approved Cancer Drugs 2018 to 2022. So only five yeah. years, and you're telling me 12 drugs have been approved in the adjuvant setting in five years, and you're going to take a look at the quality of life, and the yeah. point you make that's very good right off the bat is that there is no way on planet Earth that you can improve the quality of life in somebody who's already cured. It can't get better. It can only get worse for them. And the only question is whether or not the benefit in the people who haven't been cured 
is great enough to offset the loss in the people who have been cured. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think, yeah. And also, I think it has to be approached maybe a bit differently. Um, for, ins for instance, you know, if, you, if you're a cure, of course, your, your quality of life could be impaired when you're a cure. But I think a good metric would be what is the quality of life before any recurrence? What is the quality of life when you are taking the pill? And I think this is a key question and also the threshold of quality of life impairment the, 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 to say that it's clinically meaningful um, decrement. I think this threshold has to be different in the adjuvant setting than in the advanced or metastatic setting. I, it's very different. It's very, very different, different situations. So what we did with, um, so it's a pa paper published with Claire Smith, um, Alison Aslam, Alfredo Adeo and, and yourself. <coughs> and what we did is um, we selected all the, all the trials that were um, registration trial in that space uh, between 2018 and March 2022. And so we found 12 uh, trials. In 11 of them, they collected quality of life results, and in 10 of them, they reported the results. So we analyzed the report, the reports, and we make we made a, an assessment according to a very um, a precise methodology described by Fires and colleagues. Mm -hmm. And so we double assessed with Allison, and we found that in nine out of 10, they there were a high, moderate to high risk of bias in the report. Okay, first let me tell the listeners yeah, real quick yeah. the, the 10 drugs, uh, or the 12 drugs. We looked at the Pacific trial, Dervalumab, we all know this, Pacific, my favorite. C uh, Combi-AD, Dibrafenib, Trametinib, and Melanoma. We looked at Keynote 54, Pembrolizumab. Uh, we looked at Catherine, Trastuzumab, uh, TDM1. We looked at Adora, of course, Checkmate 577, Nivolumab, Keynote 522, Pembro, Checkmate 274, Nivolumab, Empower 10, Keynote 564, Keynote 716, and Olympia, a Olympia AD, Olap, I yeah, thought, yeah, Olaparib. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's Olympia, this one. Olympia, yeah. not Olympia, yeah, right, that's the yeah, message. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, Olympia. One, yeah. So but it's okay. very good, it's very good you cite them because it's immediately apparent that it's all new drugs, you know, uh, TKI, uh, checkpoint inhibitors, inhibitor. checkpoint inhibitors, and yeah, costly drugs. And we are already published something about costs with Aydin Musavi also, and, and this is a topic we are interested in. So, okay, your first point. Your first point is that uh, only 10 of these 12 studies even tell me the quality of life data. Um, 11 yeah, yeah. have collected it, and one didn't even yeah. collect it. Why, why wouldn't you collect it? That seems pretty bad. Uh, if, you if you collect it and if you tell me, you are at high risk of bias. Now, what does this risk of bias tool mean? What does it even mean? You know, what is risk so, of bias? So the risk of bias, there are many, many, many uh, assessments, but you... Basically, we we assess for five items, and you could you could have selective reporting, you could have uh, missing data, you could have other other things. I, I won't get into the weeds of that, but sure. the main the main bias that is uh, almost pervasive in those trials is missing data. Yes. So we already show that uh, in a, in another work uh, before in the Checkmate 067 trial in melanoma, but Missing data is very often an issue, and so, um, and so very often it, it makes uh, the results less reliable. Reliable, and uh, but there were also some other bias, and you have a heat map describing for each 
trial where we found some um, uh, risk of bias and this was explaining our overall assessment. Yeah, I mean, the big thing is that not everyone is filling out these forms dutifully in the future. And is that not filling out at random or is it due to some covariate? And very likely it's due to something. Like you're not doing so good, you don't like it so much. Or, you know, if you are uh, 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 more fortunate, you may be more likely to fill out the forms, things are going well for you. So that's the one point. I think right off the bat is we're we're not even putting our hands on the elephant, I mean, you know, our fingers touching it in one spot, and then our, the rest of our hand is sort of being pushed away. I, I will have some other thoughts about that that we okay. we didn't talk <coughs> about in the in the discussion, but I want to talk about yeah, this with you. Yeah. You know, I th- I think also the quality of life is depending on how the efficacy data will be presented to you. Mm-hmm. Ima- imagine you are told that this treatment will save your life hundred percent of cases. I mean, I mean you 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 feeling about your quality of life could be different regarding the drug you are taking as compared if somebody is telling you know a more nuanced and balanced uh, appreciation of uh, of efficacy data so this is a point we didn't talk about but i I was really thinking about that because i think assessing quality of life in this space is also is, is is also related to how people are communicated about efficacy uh data yes I think that's absolutely true. And an investigator once told me that um, the moment you would tell someone they progressed, <clears throat> their quality of life form would instantly go down. Yeah, um, yeah. Similarly, the hype and, uh, and uh, uh, excitement for a drug might color your quality of life upwardly biased. Yeah, yeah. I Why don't you so. take us through the results of the study? So, what did you find here? What yeah. are the core so, takeaways? So, yeah. so, so the core takeaway, the, the, the first core takeaway is that we found that the, there were a high risk of bias in three out of ten, and a moderate ris- risk of bias in six out of ten, making that in nine out of ten, ninety percent of reports there were moderate to high risk of bias. Yeah. So basically, you can't, when you have a risk of bias, this is meaning that you can't really rely on those results that the, the first result the second result we we, we conducted um we conducted a, a meta-analysis with um in the trial with uh, which were reporting some specific uh, score that is uh, the very famous qlqc 30 score and the meta-analysis show that the results are favoring the uh, control arm that was in almost most cases placebo arm but it doesn't mean the clinically significant threshold. And so here it's more, you know, a a philosophical discussion and a theoretical discussion, but what this threshold mean in the adjuvant space, because all all of what we said already. Um, And this threshold has has changed over over trials. In some trials, 10, in some trials, five. And here it was less, you know, it was less uh, than five. But we think that uh, it should be reassessed in the quality uh, in the adjuvant setting, because all these um, questions were uh, validated in metastatic or advanced setting. So, in other words, what Timothy's making the point is that if you pool all these randomized studies when they're giving you the result, despite all the caveats aforementioned, you find your quality of life is worse if you take the drug. It's worse yeah. if you take the drug. Now, is it clinically meaningfully worse? Does it meet the threshold of? meaningful deterioration or what they call you know deterioration uh, and that threshold is set yeah. from metastatic disease where yeah. people have a cancer that they feel and have a pro- burden it's not set for like the average healthy person on the street 
And so, and, yes, it's not doesn't meet that bar, but it's not it's not like you're better off by taking the drug. And you know, in individual trials, they are reporting that the quality of life is not impaired. Yes. So, so and, and and I worried it's also a kind of marketing tool. Yes. Honestly, in some cases, at least. And so, so I think it's not totally fair. And I think we should just pause and and say, okay, in the adjuvant space, people are maybe are already cured and we want to lower the risk of recurrence and and this is not the same the same setting the last thing that is important i think is that and and, and this will be a a, a nice uh, you know um, a nice uh, introduction for another paper we did is that um, financial toxicity is not at all or is very little captured in those quality of life questionnaires so i think it's another point and we published with Aydin Musavi um, in JAMA Network Open this uh, analysis on basically the same trials in the adjuvant space. And uh, we show that the, the cost, the median costs were, were very high in these, uh, in these uh, trials. That I mean, in these settings. Yeah, that paper was basically saying, what is the cost to avert an event? Yeah. Knowing that the event is not survival, the primary endpoint of these studies is mostly yeah. disease-free survival. And the cost to avert an event the median was something like $1.2 million, $1.4 million, wasn't it? But 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 even go, I, I, even just the median cost was uh, $158,000. The median cost for, 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 for one treatment for, for, one, for one patient. Right. And it, Many it of whom are up, cured already. Right. And it went up to almost five, uh, 500000 for osimertinib. For Adora. As you know, it was yes. uh, the, the highest one. Yes. And, um, and yeah, for, for one patient. Horrific. Okay, so the takeaway point, I think, of your quality of life paper is that, um, look, everybody is going around saying our drug doesn't worsen adjuvant quality of life, uh, and it may have a DFS benefit. That's not true. It's very likely due to statistical vagaries. If you pool all these studies, your quality of life is worse, as one would expect, as is intuitive, for taking a drug when you otherwise feel fine. Now, the question is whether or not that DFS benefit on the back end is big enough to justify the quality of life hit on the front end. Yeah. Uh, and then finally, the other takeaway point is that using metrics of quality of life derived from the metastatic setting to the people who have, in the adjuvant setting, who have may have had yeah. their tumor fully removed is probably not apt. And then the final yeah. thing is they're not collecting the data very well. That's why they're high risk. Of yeah. Bias. Yeah. Let's talk about financial and, toxicity. Yeah. Financial toxicity. So this was um, uh, another paper. So it's, it's published. Uh, also in Journal of Cancer Policy, I think, yes. with uh, Alison Aslam and, and you, um, so the, um, my, my, uh, I think my top quarters, my two top quarters. <laughs> and uh, so this was a, a very basic question, but um, I think never investigated like we did. And the question was, is financial toxicity captured in clinical trial, uh, randomized clinical trials? Because very often we are talking about uh, financial toxicity but most data coming from financial toxicity are coming from observational studies um, registries and, and 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 this kind of data and it seems pretty obvious when you think about it and because when you are enrolling a, a patient that most of the time the sponsor is providing the study drug so this is a this is a kind of uh, intuitive uh, thinking, but we wanted to really look at this and to document this. And actually we found three potential um, hurdles to capture financial <laughs> toxicity. Um, 
and uh, we will talk about that, yeah. Okay, so this is something very interesting where we're saying, um, you know, you're measuring financial toxicity, or so you're measuring quality of life in these studies. How might financial toxicity play a role? You have a very nice figure, figure one, it's called three potential barriers. I'm gonna name them, you're gonna go through them. Number one, quality of life surveys without direct financial toxicity questions. So in other words, we're not yeah. asking about it. Two, the study drug is being given to you for free by the sponsor. Three, mm. you're getting paid when you're enrolled in the trial. So why don't you take yeah. us through this? Number one, they don't I ask think, you. Yeah. yeah, let's take us through. I think that's really great to go through in this order. You you will understand why. So the, the first one, um, can you, you remind it just for the me? The first one is that yeah. when they give you the quality of life questionnaire, ah, yeah, they don't yeah, yeah, ask yeah. you about financial yeah, toxicity. Yeah. So, so we found that in um, uh, f uh, fifty-three percent of trials, there are questions, uh, or we can say, say in the reverse, forty-seven percent of trials there are no question about financial toxicity in the quality of life questions. So um, it's it's almost half and half. So there are, there are not a single question about fin financial toxicity. Uh, the only questionnaire that contains a question about f financial toxicity is the QLQC 30 questionnaire. And it's only one question, qu question 28. And it's all no also not present in the QLQC su summary score. So I think that the first um, uh, document important documenta documentation is that in, in many times, almost 50% of times, you don't have even one question about financial toxicity. Hmm. But one could, could argue, and this will lead to our second point, one could argue that financial toxicity can have an impact on many, many aspects of your life, physical, emotional, uh, psychological, and so on. And this can be captured by other metrics that are in your uh, quality of life questions. But this le leads us to our second point. And the second point is yeah. that they're giving you the drug for free. I mean... If they are giving you the drug for free, it's not at all reflecting the real life, obviously. Mm -hmm. So we want it, and, and it's pretty, you think it's pretty straightforward, but I couldn't find an article that was, uh, you know, very clear about that. So we could document that in 70% of trial, the study drug was provided by, by the sponsor. So, so we looked at uh, protocols, the, 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 the publication, and all, all of that. I'm almost sure that it's close to 100%, maybe 90%, I don't know, but we could document it in 70% of trials. Yeah. And I think it's a big distortion because it's going to be it's going to feel different to take the drug when you're going to have to pay that copay out of pocket. It's going to feel yeah. different. Now let's yeah. go to the third point. The third point of course is you're getting paid to be on the trial. Why don't we talk yeah, about that? Yeah. So so yeah, so this was pretty rare. Um, this was uh, documented in I think uh, only two trials out of uh, 73, uh, because we selected 73 trials. Um, but I suspect this is uh, not really reported because maybe, s I mean, in some cases, it's just decided by local local IRB or, or you know, local investigators. So I don't know if it's more than that. Um, we documented only in two, so it makes, I think, 3% of uh, our trials, but this could be also a hurdle. and. We are not saying in this paper that um, you know people should should enter in in trials and and pay themselves the drug. We, we are not saying that at all, but, but we are just saying that the quality of life results should be take taken with a, a big grain of salt 
when you know that the drug is very costly and when you know that the patient will have to participate to these costs. I was just thinking recently about the Adora trial and the Adora trial, as you know, among the people who had progression on the control arm, 38.5% actually took the study drug, which is very low and beneath what would happen in Switzerland or the United States. So I can't help but imagine the trials being run in places where they don't have many good paths to osimertinib. And now you enroll in a trial where they give you osimertinib or placebo for free. Mm. I imagine your quality of life is going to be different than if you were in yeah. the United States or Switzerland where you know, okay, it's nice of them to have the trial, but otherwise mm. I'd get the medicine you know, when I need it, progress. Mm. But if you're in a place where it's nice to have a trial, and if it weren't for this trial, I'll never get this drug ever, it might be a little bit different. And so your points are well taken. One, the drug is being given for free. Two, it's being run in places where you may be extra grateful. Three, you may be getting paid for being on the study. And four, they're not even asking you about financial toxicity in the quality of life yeah, questionnaires. Yeah, yeah. You put all that together and you have a big problem, which is that quality of life in the real world with the co-pays might be different than the quality of life on these pivotal trials. And, and that was uh, one of our proposition because we, we, we try to, to really, you know, be constructive in our works. One, one of our proposition was to really conduct post-requirement study about quality of life in, in real life settings after, after these drugs are being approved. Because I think this would be uh, important, again, with good data, not too much missing data, and, and on a long period of time, you publish with Alison's uh, Aslam a, a very nice paper showing that usually quality of life is measured on a very limited uh, limited period of time, and this is not um, this is not appropriate. So, I think post requirement data would be would be great in in this uh, in this situation. I couldn't agree more. So let's turn to what I think is the most interesting paper yeah. of the lot. Not that these aren't interesting, but this is the most comprehensive yeah, and, work. Yeah, and, uh, and to be honest, this was uh, uh, an important work. An important work, <laughs> yes, I think it is. I mean, an important uh, task to do, yeah. And commitment, commitment. Yeah, it yeah. took the most time. And it but took it, was, uh, it, was, it was great to do. All right, let me pull it up. Here it is, post-progression treatment. Here we go. The title. BMC Cancer, out now, yeah. 2023. All these articles out in the last few months. Post-progression yeah. treatment. And by the way, that's why, that's why people do a one-year sabbatical here at UCSF. How many papers you got from your one-year sabbatical, Timothy? I would say 40. F 40? 4-0? Four I, uh, I mean, 30 or 40, I yeah. think. Yeah. yeah, something like Because some of them are published now. And I, yes, I, I, and they're still yeah. from the work we started back then. But, okay, here but, we go. I, I didn't count, but I think... Between 30 and 40, honestly. There are, yeah. there are lots of things in life. It's better not to count, and this is one of them. So post-progression <laughs> treatment in cancer randomized trials, a cross-sectional study of trials leading to FDA approval yeah. and published trials. And here we're talking about something that, you know, when I entered oncology, nobody talked about. Nobody talked about. Yeah. And then I think we put it on the map with our work on crossover, Allison and I, and this yeah. is going to put it on the map even more, which is that when it comes to the primary endpoint of the study, if that's progression-free survival, the only thing that matters is things that happened on protocol, during the protocol, during the primary progression treatment time. But when it comes to any secondary endpoint, PFS2, PFS3, um, time to the second subsequent therapy, and overall survival, everything that happens after protocol matters. It really matters whether or not you got the appropriate therapies in second or third line. And here you're taking a look at yeah. three years of FDA trials. Tell us what you're looking at. 
So yeah, we conducted two analyses. So in parallel, um, we look at uh, published trials in six top uh, high um, top journals, and we looked at registration trials. So um, in the first, uh, the published trial, I think there were 225 trials. Uh, no, sorry, 275 trials, and there were 77 FDA-approved um, registration trials. And so we looked at different things. We looked at whether the post-protocol data were present and accessible, because sometimes you just have one line, but it's uh, really not enough to, to, to be able to assess anything. And so this was our first result that among published trials, the data were accessible in only 36% of trials. So it's, it's not a lot. So in yeah, okay so okay no and, I mean I think in, uh, that's, in that's FG, a point yeah yeah, yeah. And, they're not and, telling and you what happens they're not telling okay. you what happens and in in FDA registration trial this number was forty eight percent so only in those trials you can assess for post progression data well that's because in cancer medicine people live forty fifty years after the trial so it's a long time to follow them. Okay, I won't, <laughs> I won't say. <laughs> and so then we looked when we had the data and we assessed. That that's true. He doesn't think that that's true. Yeah. And, and, and we assessed for, for the quality of post production data. And here I think this will be the most um, uh, in interesting part because we set some rules. And I know these rules will be dis discussed, but I mean, people can, can propose other rules. And we assessed post protocol data with these three rules so the first rule uh, i mean do you want to to speak about that no let's i think i think the rules are the key so people who've read this paper they know that timothy set some rules i mean we set some rules timothy set the rules yeah. the rules are not meant to be very hard these are not really hard rules but if you don't meet this bar it's really really bad so take us through the three rules what are the three rules and so 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 the first rule is basically yeah. and, and and i think also it's a it's a common min misunderstanding i see sometimes on social media. It's not about all patients entering the trial, uh, how many of them will get uh, a, a checkpoint inhibitor, for instance, at progression. It's about among people that will receive a systemic treatment in the next line, how many received what is considered standard of care, best standard of care. I think it's, it's really important to, to, to separate those two because you will see in rule three, we are, we are talking about the, the, the total percentage of patients that, receiving, uh, that is receiving post-protocol care. But here in the first rule, it's among patients receiving the next treatment, systemic next treatment, how many of them get standard of care. And if, if it's less than 90% of them, then we said it's not appropriate. So the first rule... Maybe, and maybe I can, I can give you two yeah. example yeah where where it was uh the rule was not uh, appropriate so for instance and, and and maybe you can talk about that latitude trial you want latitude. to exemplify with the latitude yeah that's a good one okay oh. <clears throat> the problem with latitude was latitude is a randomized control trial in castrate sensitive prostate cancer testing the addition of abiraterone to androgen deprivation or not Latitude found an overall survival benefit from the addition of abiraterone, but notably, the control arm, when they eventually had castrate-resistant prostate cancer, 
which the standard of care from Cougar 1, Cougar 2 was to give them abiraterone, or Enza, from uh, the other studies, uh, they didn't get it. They didn't get Abby or Enza on the control 20, arm when they progressed. Tw 20, 24% actually? 24% got, but it, got abiraterone. Uh, so so, so, so yes. 24% of patients that received a subsequent therapy. It's yes. important to, to make this decision. And even if you add Enza, it, it can be up to 50%, but it's still very low. I mean, it's still very low. And the point is that you're testing Abby early in lots of people against Abby essentially never. For 75% mm -hmm. of people who are getting subsequent mm -hmm. treatment, they're not getting Abby. And so, of course, some Abby is better than dying without access to medicine. Um, you know, abiraterone early is better than someone kissing you on the forehead and tucking you in bed. But mm. that doesn't really answer the doctor's question, which is, do I have to give it early or can I withhold it and give it later and get the same outcome with less toxicity, less cost and less treatment duration? And, and also, I want to provide a, a, a counter example of, okay. of a trial where it was really great yes. in the profile 10, 14 trial, Criso, yes. so ALK, ALK rearranged uh, lung cancer, first line. Crisotini versus chemotherapy. Upon progression in, in the chemotherapy arm, 98% of patients got crisotinib. 98%. So, so you, can, you see, it's possible to have good post-protocol care. And in that case, if I recall, there's no OS benefit. Uh, yeah, I think so, yeah. Yeah, so which approves actually it's okay to withhold it as a second-line agent. Okay, but let's go to the... But I think you're right. It also proves that you can give it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you want to do the second rule? So the, the second rule, I think, it's, uh, it's, it, it, yeah, it was really the, the, the rule that you, you described with Alison in this paper in Annals of Oncology. It's about appropriate crossover or, or, or inappropriate crossover. And here, to keep the 10%, the because in the first rule, if you have more than 10% that are not receiving the best avala available care, this is not appropriate here. It's if you have more than 10% of people receiving inappropriate crossover, this will again not be appropriate. And this would be the an two examples example I have, yeah, okay, yeah. Give your example. okay uh, you, you will like them. I know, I know. I know. <laughs> go on, go on. I, I'm gonna say, what does it mean to be inappropriate crossover? It means that your drug has never shown efficacy in any setting, Yeah, yeah. and yet, yeah. In the control arm, you give everyone that drug on the back end, even though it has not established itself. It's different than abiraterone. In the abiraterone case, it's already established itself in the latter line by Cougar 1, Cougar 2. You're giving it early. In the control arm, you should give it by Cougar 1, Cougar 2. In this next example, you're going to give an example where you give it early versus you give it later, but I don't know if you should give it later. In fact, it's probably delaying mm -hmm. the time to better therapy. Okay, give me the example. No, the example we give in the, the paper is uh, Polo, the Polo trial when... 15% of pa patients got crossover. And the problem here is that the investigator will say that if you don't have an OS benefit, which is the case in Polo, they will say it's because of crossover, you know? And another example I have in mind is uh, more recent, is a code break 200 trial with 34% uh, of crossover. And again, you have the, the same issue because you can't interpre interpret correctly survival results. What about this glioma drug that just came out at ASCO? Yeah, I think this is uh, also an example of bad crossover. I make the calculation, 90% of patients got crossover. Um, and the problem with that, we will never be able to interpret, uh, interpret survival res results. Yeah. This is a glioma drug for an IDH1-2 inhibitor yeah, that's given. Yeah, yeah. And it's, the trial has got so many shitty things about it. One is you, you, you're supposed to be giving these people like adjuvant chemo RT. They don't get that. Like that's a standard of care. 
they omit that, and, and then they give yeah. you the drug, get a PFS win, then cross everybody over, and then they mask potentially a survival decrement, or if there's no survival benefit, they say it's because we crossed him over. You don't know if the drug makes you live longer because everyone ends up on the drug. It's really muddying the water. Yeah, I think the, 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 the criteria to enter the study in the PCV trial and this trial are maybe a bit different, but yeah, I fully agree. Th there were PCV trial that was led and uh, that was published eight, eight years ago and overall survival was the primary endpoint and it was a positive trial. And, and uh, it was in the first line setting. Here, it's not the first line setting, it's <coughs> recurrent setting. So yeah, and, and we, won't, we won't be able to know if it's providing a, a survival benefit. And I think it's very, it's very important for patient to know that give the and listeners of this podcast will know my favorite example is sipilucil tea and i've talked about that ad nauseum. yeah yeah give the third example so the third example and i think it's maybe the most underappreciated uh, example i don't know what you think about that but it's when your overall access in both arms is low as compared to real life settings yeah this can lead to um, this can lead to uh, a false a false result or biased results of survival. And we give the examples of the Mona Lisa Seven trial. So in Mona Lisa Seven trial, basically it's mostly first line setting of um, uh, patient with uh, breast metastatic breast cancer uh, with um, uh, sens sensitivity to hormone therapy. And they got roughly in both arms seventy percent got subsequent therapy. In real life setting, do you imagine that almost thirty percent of your patient won't have any access to second line therapy? And we're and saying actually any and any therapy for the rest any of your therapy and any and therapy and forever. And, oh. and 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 we had a reference uh, in the paper showing that. Um, in the real life setting, it could be up to 92% in some settings. So here, the problem is if you have a, uh, if you have activity or if you have a PFS benefit, this could translate in survival benefit just because you won't have any treatment further the line. You you won't have this dilution of survival, which is which is good. I mean, it's good to have a dilution of survival uh, because the goal is to have the same survival with less treatment or I mean uh, th or less toxicity and and uh, so so this is the third example and so people can go through the paper and this rule wa was uh, um, presenting 23 percent of the papers assessed as inappropriate the rule one was in 60 percent of them so it was really the majority so people can go there and, and decide if they want uh, if they want to agree or not with the rules but basically at the end of the day our findings is that in published trials it was appropriate and accessible in 16 percent of trials and in fda approved drugs it was 11.7 percent so, so you know, the, the yeah, last point, yeah. the analogy I'll give you is it's like saying, um, if I make a turkey sandwich and I charge $500,000 for a turkey sandwich, and if I gave it to people in America, they're going to live just as long as they'd otherwise live. It's just one turkey sandwich. But if I go to some place in the world where somebody has nothing to eat and I give them the turkey sandwich, they might live two days longer than the person without the turkey sandwich because they got mm. something rather than nothing. Mm. Mm. And that's kind of your point about the backdrop of therapy. The question that faces us is, should we in this country where we have $400,000 to pay for a turkey sandwich, pay for the turkey sandwich? 
And then you need to know, you have to give it in a situation where people have all the other things we have in this country. Yeah. If you go to some place where they have nothing and you give a turkey sandwich, and then you say, it justifies $400,000, you know, you've got a problem. Oh, I ran out of video on my card, so it's gonna switch over to this video. Um, what's my point here? And I think we can wrap this up um, in the next few minutes, but my point is, um, you know, ultimately what you're doing in all these projects is the same thing. It's a philosophical approach to trials to inform our practice. You know, you, we're the doctor, we're in the, we're in the clinic and we have to make decisions for people based yeah. on how they are, how they look, how they're coming into us. And the only evidence we're getting is this evidence where you're not collecting the quality of life properly. Yeah. You're not, you're not, you're giving the drug for free. You are, mm. you are, um, uh, uh, you, you are uh, not giving appropriate post-protocol care. And then yeah. you get a trial like Adora where we mm -hmm. randomize all these people with 1B, 2, and 3 lung cancer to adjuvant Aussie at $460,000 per pop per person, and we get an OS benefit, but the control arm is getting negligent care yeah, that we would yeah. never give, and then we're told that we should change our practice, and everyone is celebrating this. And so yeah, yeah. your paper comes in, although it's, it's, it's listed as, a, as policy, it's not. It's really a philosophical paper about met oncology and what it means. I think, yeah, I think it's... it's philosophical and and also it's really practical and i said this many times on the show but and we we talk about that many times but it's very practical i i, I really integrate all this in my discussion with patient and honestly it change it change sometimes the, i think the, the the decision we we are making and people can really appreci appreciate i i don't say every everybody but some people re can really appreciate this limitation and I think you have to be fair. You have to to show the the benefits. You have to show. The, I mean, we are not saying it's all you know all bad. I mean, there were there were impressive uh, trials during the the last two two decades and impressive. Uh, um, I mean, impressive results. But it's really really helpful in the clinical decision making. To me, to me, I feel. But it's also very frustrating because. We, we don't have uh, many times we don't have the answer uh, uh, of uh, you know it's like the, the example of EP nivo versus nivo in in first line melanoma we don't we don't have really the the answer and it's, it's very frustrating the esmo mcbs people they read what we're saying and they incorporating it into their guidelines sometimes they cite us but not always <laughs> uh, i don't i i don't think there are I, I mean they are not i mean to, to if we if, if we talk about that they are not Assessing the control arm, and they are not assessing post-progression treatment. Uh, and I think, they, and uh, they, uh, yeah, they, uh, they weren't even aware of it. They listen now; they're aware of it. They're they're gonna, probably going to revise it in the future. But they hadn't. You're right. They did, they weren't aware of it. Um, they were they were assessing based on the things that they had thought of, and not the things they hadn't thought of. And we're trying to show you things you hadn't thought of, and that's sort of the virtue of our work. That's one. Two, we're giving space for people to have the conversation. Adora mm. is getting getting smacked around yeah. on Twitter. Yeah. Yeah. And five years ago, it wouldn't have been smacked around uh, yeah. because people didn't have plenary session. People didn't have these kinds of resources. Now people all see. They're seeing. True. Because, you know, the thing about this is you say it's practical, it's philosophical, and it's also fundamentally logical. It's logical. Yeah, and once it's basic. It's basic. basic. And once you see the logic, you cannot unsee it. You're, you, you see that it makes no sense to not give the control arm. Yeah. It makes yeah. no sense to measure... Uh, quality of life in a setting where you're giving people all these freebies. It makes no sense to have a trial of a ham sandwich or turkey sandwich in a backdrop of no food. That makes no and sense. Yeah, it's, 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 it's just the thing about quality of life in, in the adjuvant setting is very basic to, to, I mean, 
if you are not taking a drug versus taking a drug, it's very basic to think that your quality of life will probably will be a little, uh, at least a little bit impaired. I mean, if you're taking a drug versus not taking a drug. And then they are coming, uh, com coming up saying your quality of life is, is the same. We should, you know, I don't know. It, yeah. it, doesn't, it doesn't pass the gut test. You're, uh, yeah. That taking the a yeah, cancer the chemotherapy yeah. has the same quality of life as not taking it. That doesn't pass my gut test. That cancer yeah, chemotherapy yeah, is yeah. identical quality yeah. of life as not taking it. It doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and again, the difference is in the metastatic setting, you can say the drug is shrinking the tumor and making you feel better. And so there's a countervailing force. In the adjuvant setting, you cannot say that. There's nothing yeah. detectable to be causing you symptoms. That's the, yeah. that's the yeah. burden. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Timothy, I think it's so many great points. Listeners should go back and listen to this again because there's lots of gems in here that you may not have picked up. And but, there were no uh, slides, so they can also listen to uh, the audio only. So that's good. That's good. And I might put the video out there too because I think your camera looks good and my memory card is most of it looked good. Um, all right. We will be back. We've got at least th two more malignant yeah, book clubs to do. Yeah, and we absolutely. have some more papers we need to talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was great uh, to, to be on the show again. And uh, great. I mean, this, this work is, uh, I think, really important. And I, I, I know that many, many people, patient, public, healthcare providers, many, many people are following you and your works and our team. And, and I think it's, uh, it's very good. Timothy Olivier, and thanks for doing this. Thanks, Vinay. On that positive note. On that positive note. Yeah.